Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast. Uh, this is a podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in HVACR. I'm your host, John Sheff. I'm Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's topic is uh, decarbonization policies in North America. And I'm thrilled to be joined by our guest, uh, Drew Turner, who is Dan Foss's Global Marketing Manager for Oil Free Solutions. Drew, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, Drew Turner, so Dan Foss, Oil Free Solutions, the Global Marketing Manager. Been in the industry for about 23 years now, uh, going on six years with Dan Foss always working in uh, marketing or product planning or strategic planning type of roles. Dan Fossil Oil Free Solutions is really trying to build off uh, the success of the turbocore compressor in the cooling market and especially trying to get into new applications and with a portfolio of Dan Fossil Solutions specifically for oil-free applications. So, for example, one of the topics that we're talking about today with heat pumps and uh, the new compressors that we've developed to get into the heat pump application market and also the full portfolio of Danfoss components that can complement that compressor offering for a heat pump application. Thanks, Drew. And, and for those those of us who are not uh, so well-versed in the terminology, why don't you just tell us what you mean by the TurboCore compressor? So the, the TurboCore compressor has actually been around now for almost 25 years from the time it was first invented uh, in Australia back in 1995. Uh, the the compressor is a dramatically different technology than what existed in the marketplace uh, at the time and up through the last several years as well. It's a magnetic bearing-based compressor technology utilizing centrifugal uh, or dynamic compression, uh, multi-stage centrifugal compression, and variable speed. So incorporating all of those into a compressor-based solution that is much more efficient uh, than the other technologies that were out there at the time and the majority that are out there today as well. It's the main factor uh, driving the centrifugal compression and the magnetic bearings was the goal to go oil-free. And the oil-free, which you'll hear us talk about several times, is really critical to the HVAC market or the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning market because of what it drives in terms of application flexibility and long-term performance benefits. So utilizing oil in an HVAC system tends to degrade performance over time. So if you remove that oil, you remove that performance degradation factor. And it also allows you the flexibility to uh, retrofit applications and to combine multiple different compressors on a single circuit, which in turn drives additional efficiency benefit, especially on part load efficiency. It's very cool stuff, and this is uh, some technology that really fits well with the topic today, and we'll get into that a little bit later, particularly when we talk about heat pumps, but let's back up a little bit and talk about decarbonization, electrification, what these things mean. They're really synonymous, but they're really being driven by some of these state uh, and local emissions goals. For example, uh, New York State has recently uh, enacted legislation that seeks to uh, limit statewide emissions by 40% uh, based on 1990 levels uh, by 2030 and 85% by 2050. Uh, they're 
to, to net zero greenhouse gas emissions across uh, the state's economy and 70% renewable electricity by 2030 uh, and 100% zero emission electricity by 2040. So these are some pretty ambitious goals. There are other states that are doing similar things, but these are goals that are really driving a lot of the interest in decarbonization and electrification. So we have those goals. We also have uh, city emissions targets. Uh, we see these in New York City and Washington, D.C., and we'll talk about what those cities are doing uh, in a few minutes, but they're really looking at building emissions on, on the local level and how to actually enact these things. And then, Drew, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what utilities are doing in the clean energy realm and, and how that's impacting decarbonization and electrification? Yeah, absolutely. So utilities are really the major driving factor with the electrification. So specifically, the investor-owned utilities have been given the task to drive the decarbonization in states and in uh, local municipalities. And driving it down from the utilities really gives the flexibility to implement it in different methods. So if you have carbon reduction goals, if you implement them at the utility level, it drives that flexibility to implement with several different options or several different solutions. Electrification being a major component of that. And so the utilities are um, creating electrification programs and goals for their participants. So the people purchasing power from the electric utilities, the electric utilities work with them to electrify their buildings. So changing out fossil fuel boilers to heat pumps, uh, as an example, and all of the other fossil fuel source equipment, whether it's for heating or for other uses incentivizing and creating programs around driving those changes. And so it's really the utilities and their electrification programs that are driving this. So that's really interesting. So, uh, you know, I think when, when we think about electrification and utilities, I think people automatically think about renewable energy and trying to switch from gas-fired or coal-fired power plants to, to more solar or wind. But you're really talking about uh, the utilities helping building owners change out their HVAC equipment that is potentially using natural gas or even uh, fuel oil um, and putting in more electric options. So what is the relationship between renewable energy and energy efficiency? Yeah, absolutely. So the utility driving it again at the utility level creates that flexibility. So they can change out their power plants to more efficient and lower emission sources. But in the meantime, uh, those are those are significant investments to make out those to make those change outs, and so they incrementally happen over time. In the meantime, what they can do is drive down the emissions, and that's the supply side. On the demand side, what they can do is create these electrification programs to drive down the emissions on the end user side or the demand side. And so, the electrification program is really intended to drive that. The latter, the the demand side changes. So for instance, what I mentioned before on, on changing out the fossil fuel fired boiler to an electric heat pump and other equipment that uses fossil fuels at the end user site, the utilities have developed a list of the major hitters, if you will, for, for those emissions and those fossil fuel energy uses at their end customer sites. And they work with those customers to, to make those changes and incentivize. Okay, so that makes sense. But I mean, I think this may sound like a stupid question, but something that I've, I've heard a lot uh, is why, if we're going to make 
plan on producing 100% of our energy from renewable sources, why do we need to worry about energy efficiency? Why do we need to make these buildings more efficient? That's a good question. And it's not an obvious answer, but the, the one, one of the main factors is because the renewables are only available when they want to be. So the sun only shines when it wants, the wind only blows when it wants. And so you see a, whereas in the past, uh, discussions on variations with utilities and, and, uh, and peaks and valleys were mainly driven by the demand side. Now they're really driven by the supply side. And so energy efficiency becomes perhaps arguably even more important in a full renewable portfolio because you have to be able to match the supply and the demand with a varying supply. And getting to a 100% renewable portfolio is a monumental task because of that supply variation. And so how you address that is... Um, on the demand side by also installing storage or, or on the supply side by also installing storage as well as storage on the demand side. But it becomes more critical in that world to also drive energy efficiency such that you avoid getting to those limiting factors on the supply side and matching it with the demand side. Yeah. So you mentioned storage and, and you talked about on the supply side and the demand side. So let's just uh, dive into that a little bit. Um, so when we talk about storage on the supply side, we're really talking about utility grade storage, right? Correct. And, and what kind of technologies do those look like and, and how does that kind of play into the ebbs and flows of supply? Right. So, uh, Utility-grade storage in general takes various forms. You have uh, pumped hydro storage, and you have what is becoming more prevalent today and is expected to be the, the main factor in the future is, of course, power storage in the form of batteries. And that utility-grade power storage in the form of batteries is not extremely cost-effective today. So the other factor that comes into play both on the supply side and the demand side, uh, especially with HVAC applications, is also thermal storage. Mm -hmm. So both uh, thermal in, in the form of heating as well as thermal in, in the form of cooling. And you see, especially over in Europe, on the utility side, uh, there's a lot of, uh, with the district energy type systems, they'll uh, the thermal flywheel of the heating district heating utility loop itself is a form of storage, but they'll add additional storage in the form of heating and cooling tanks. And you see that in the U.S. as well, uh, especially with district cooling, which is more prevalent today than district heating. But you'll see that uh, utility scale storage tanks of district cooling supply as well. So that's one of the, met, one of the many methods for balancing it out in, is with the thermal storage in addition to the power storage that is becoming more prevalent. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. I don't want to, we do a whole uh, show just on, on utility scale uh, storage. I don't want to get too, too down in the weeds, but uh, when we're talking about this dynamic between efficiency and, and uh, renewable energies, where we're heading in the future, we talk about uh, HVAC technology. You mentioned variable speed technology. How important is that going to be as we move into this new uh, new uh, future where we have a, a lot of these new technologies? It, it becomes, it's a really good question. It becomes much more important because, again, those peaks and valleys that you see, uh, you, you see those peaks a lot 
on the demand side, you, you see those peaks a lot based on starting up and operating uh, equipment when it's hottest outside or, when, or on the heating side when it's coldest outside. And variable speed technology allows you to closely match the demand to the power draw to the demand and not draw too much power and uh, hitting those demand side peaks. So it allows you to more closely match the real-time load as opposed to a constant speed, which is going to start and stop with the demand. Okay, very, very interesting stuff. Now, let's transition a little bit to talk about what is happening uh, at the municipal level, because I think in the United States, that's driving a lot of these uh, discussions and the policies. So the way I see it is kind of two different policies emerging around the country. You have what's going on in California and stuff, in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic, what we call it electrification law. So, for instance, in Berkeley and uh, Menlo Park, San Jose, uh, in California, they're banning natural gas in new commercial and residential construction. So that would mean, you know, no uh, gas furnaces, uh, no gas boilers, and, and that sort of thing. And the other emerging trend is these building emissions laws in New York and Washington, D.C., that are really looking at existing buildings and trying to limit emissions uh, in the existing building stock. So in terms of uh, the electrification policies, we're talking about new construction, uh, both residential and commercial. What kind of implications do you see there for technology uh, moving forward in, in, in new buildings? So in new buildings, what we really see as the optimal solution is when you have it driven by the emissions goals, um, because that, again, creates the flexibility to do it to implement it with different forms of technology. Uh, whereas the more prescriptive bands uh, that you see in some places are really uh, doing just that. They're, they're prescribing what they can and can't do. Uh, a market-based approach, we feel, is a, is a better approach because it, it then creates the flexibility for changing out equipment and lowering the emissions by whatever makes the most uh, combination of economic sense as well as emissions reduction sense. Yeah, so, I think that's uh, a key distinction, right, is prescriptive versus market-based. Absolutely. Absolutely, it is. Um, I'm sorry. So the second part of the question is on... What, is, uh, what are the implications for technology you see coming out of these two different types of emissions laws? Let's start with okay. uh, the, yeah. the, the electrification uh, policies, say, in California. Yeah, so the electrification policies in California are, you know, it's again more more prescriptive. If it's in the form of a ban, such as what Berkeley is doing with uh, fossil fuel fired equipment, it really drives a very specific change. And that change, for example, is that fossil fuel fired boiler to an electric heat pump. And that's the main difference. Ultimately, with the emissions reduction driven approach, you probably end up with a same or similar result uh, that you you see uh, both for new construction as well as retrofit. You see uh, changes from what has historically been fossil fuel fired equipment to electric equipment, but it's uh, it's creating the options for where you do that. So whether it's a, a natural gas or propane fired fork truck or or a uh, electric heat pump. Uh, versus a fossil fuel fired boiler, it really changes that, and and it changes the infrastructure as well. 
So if you have a ban on the new fossil fuel fired equipment, you're not installing that infrastructure to feed the building, which in our view is, I, I mean, there's a balance here, but the, that ban is going to eliminate that infrastructure option in the future. And so there is more of a certainty in the uh, switch to electrification than the equipment at the endpoint or at the end user. Whereas if it's a emissions based, you don't necessarily have that. You're still going to have that infrastructure and you still have that option. And so therefore, you probably have a slower change out on specific equipment, for example, from that fossil fuel fired boiler to the electric heat pump. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of unknowns here, particularly uh, with these electrification laws, because, you know, doing it new and uh, residential and commercial construction uh, yeah, it may sound like a lot, but it's really only one or two percent of the building stock every year. So it's not uh, not making taking a huge bite all at once. Uh, the other thing is that you know in some of these places you could see the demand curve really shift. You know, if if we're getting rid of all the the fossil fuel heating and turning that all into electric, you could see new winter peaks for for electricity that we really haven't seen before. That's a very good point. Yes, and you know, from the utilities perspective, that's beneficial because that's what they're ultimately trying to drive, right? With the with the peak reduction programs that they've had in place for many, many years, that's really what they're also driving with the electrification program. So, from the utility perspective, it's a benefit uh, in the sense that they can level down on the electric side during the summer, but they can increase uh, that curve, that valley that you otherwise see in the winter up to increasing demand more on the level of what you see in the summer during the winter based on that change from the heating equipment to the electric source. So it's beneficial to the utilities. And that's why one of the main reasons that you also see them driving this. Yeah. Unless you're a, a gas utility, then I think you're probably pretty scared right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think that we're going to see these, these electrification laws really take over, um, say, in the Midwest for instance, because I don't know how much, you know, of the heating load you can really take off in a place like Minneapolis or, or Chicago or, or something like that, where you really do have deep winters. I mean, uh, we can get into heat pump technology probably in our next episode, but I think matching that load with electricity in some of these uh, very cold climates is going to be difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, there's a lot of discussion on cold climate heat pumps, but, you know, ultimately in the end, uh, if depending on the source that you're using on the low side for that heating uh, to, to, to supply the heat to the heat pump, to boost up, to supply the heat to the building. If you go further north and you're using that outside air or ambient water on the surface, it's going to be less efficient. And so you have to have uh, better uh, solutions for providing that heating with the new electric equipment. And that's going to be independent of the technology that you utilize, at least to some extent. You can optimize it to colder climates, but ultimately it's going to be less efficient unless you find alternatives such as further down ground source equipment, et cetera. But it's a really good point. It's much harder to change in the northern climates where it's primarily heating driven. Yeah, and I mean, we, we're seeing these these electricity or electrification laws kind of explode. We mentioned Berkeley, Menlo Park, but... San Francisco, Los Angeles are also considering these types of things. So very large cities also. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what's happening with these emissions laws in New York City and Washington, D.C. So these are really um, municipal laws. Uh, New York's local law 97 
and uh, and, D- and Washington D.C.'s building performance standard were both enacted in, in 2019, and they're really looking at the existing building stock. They want to reduce emissions in these very urban environments. Buildings are by far the most, uh, the, the biggest source of emission. So the governments there are looking to really reduce those and uh, commercial building owners uh, retrofit their, their buildings in a way we really haven't seen before. And there are financial penalties for this. For instance, in New York City, there's a $268 fine for every unit the building owner is over their emissions limit. And these emissions limits start uh, in 2025. There's another in 2030. And in 2025, that uh, limit is expected to hit 25% of the city's commercial building stock that's over uh, 25,000 square feet. And in 2030, it's expected to hit 75% of that building stock. So it's really taking a big slice out and with some big financial penalties. And I think we could see the retrofit market kind of explode there in a way we really haven't seen before. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of technology um, in in existing buildings, are we still looking at heat pumps? I mean, this is what you call more of a market-based approach uh, as opposed to what we just talked about with the prescriptive approach. Does that change anything in terms of of what we're looking at as far as technologies go? It really doesn't. It changes changes the solution uh, that is easiest to use. Uh, for the retrofit market, I mean, if you're changing out a furnace or a boiler to a, an electric heat pump, I keep coming back to that example. But if you plan it ahead of time and going back to the cold climates, right, um, with a new construction job, it's much easier to plan ahead of time to integrate our ground loop to serve as the heat source for that heat pump. In a retrofit application, it's much harder to do that. And so that's why you see the drive to cold climate or ambient-driven heat pumps. So for a retrofit application, it's much harder to plan ahead the uh, full infrastructure needed for a more efficient uh, solution, but you still see the same opportunity. It's just uh, for retrofit applications, if you're going to have a very efficient solution that optimizes the reduction or maximizes the reduction in emissions and operating costs at the same time, it's more complicated to do it. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a lot of consternation over this, particularly in, in New York, where if you go a lot of these um, multifamily buildings, uh, residential and, and on the commercial side, there are a lot of big boilers in those basements. And I think people are going to have a hard time figuring out exactly how to to match that load and, and reduce their carbon footprint. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes really critical in those cases, too to optimize the footprint and the retrofitability and and the scalability or the modularized solution that you provide to those applications to make it as uh, the pain as minimal as possible. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, these buildings in both cities can also meet their goals with renewable energy, on-site renewables and storage. But as we mentioned before, any, any renewable option really has to go hand in hand with an efficiency option as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is all some really interesting stuff, and I, we could spend a lot more time digging into to each of these uh, topics. But I think we should wrap it up here. Thanks, Drew, for everything. And we'll see you next time on the next topic, uh, next show, when we talk about heat pumps specifically and how this technology is really going to meet the demand in decarbonization as we move forward. Thanks a lot. Sounds great. Thank you very much, John. 
That's it for this episode of the Visionary Exchange Podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Drew Turner, who's again the Global Marketing Manager for Oil-Free Solutions at Danfoss, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the Envisioneering Exchange Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. It really helps us out. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website site, computer, or playing device.